0: with you, or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the text. We will be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. So um, over the last six weeks, we did a, a quick series through the core values um, of Redeemer. Um, prior to that, we had spent a school year, basically, working through First and Second Samuel. And now we'll be getting um, a new book this morning, so kind of back to our a more typical um, rhythm for Redeemer working through... A book of Scripture. We're starting the book of Colossians, um, and so the first sermon in a new book always looks a little bit different because we need to kind of root ourselves um, in the setting of the book, and so it'll start maybe have a little bit more of a, a lecture feel, and then we'll move into sermon here shortly. Um, really, where we w- we're going to start this morning is this is is what genre of literature is Colossians? I um, mean, if you've been around Scripture at all. Um, you know that not all of Scripture is the same type of literature. Um, we were recently, as I said, in First and Second Samuel, which was basically a historical narrative, right? It, it's looking at a particular period of history um, for the people of Israel, and so it was it was a history that was telling uh, theology as well. Um, the The book this morning, Colossians, is a letter. Um, it's a letter to the Colossians, which is the uh, the church in the city of Colossae. Um, you can see this in verses 1 and 2. Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at, at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And if you look at the very last verse um, of Colossians, I, Paul, in verse 18, write this these greetings with my own hand, Remember my chains, grace be with you. And so unlike the Psalms, right, which are are poetry or music, um, unlike um, a lot of the Old Testament, which is narrative or history, this is a letter, right, written by Paul to a specific church in a specific place in a specific time. And so we've got to spend some time understanding what was going on um, in the church, in this situation, right, before we ask the question, well, what does it mean for me? Right, and, and a danger, a risk we run is when we turn to Scripture and we're simply looking at it through the lens of my situation and my life. Because it's rooted in history. It's rooted in a time and a place. And so we have to, we have to understand that some before we can really see what it means for us. Um, it's clear from the beginning of verses 1 and 2 and then the very last verse of chapter 4 that it's written from Paul right to the church um, in Colossae. And we know that Paul is writing from prison. Look in chapter 4, and verse 3. Um, At the same time, pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And then verse 18, which we already read, that says, remember my chains." Right? That he is writing this um, to the church from prison. Most likely, he's writing it from his imprisonment in Rome, uh, there's a possibility it was while he was in prison um, in Ephesus. Most likely it was Rome. Um, it's being, it was written somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. Right? In the early 60s, Nero is in charge. We want to be reminded that Rome is in charge of most of the known world. At this time, it's a Nero um, is the emperor. Um, Colossae is a city or was a community that's in modern-day Turkey. Okay, So if you're, if you're thinking on a map, it was southern Turkey um, in the Anatolia area. It's not ever been excavated really up to this point, although they know where the, the site is. Um, it was an area that was in a valley, um, a fertile valley. They were known for their wool industry, and they were on the banks of the River Lycus. They were on a path, so they were like 1,200 miles or so from Rome. That's a long, I mean, they're a long way from Rome. And from Rome, there was a path, a road that would lead to the river Euphrates, right, that would allow for trading in most of the known world. And um, the city of Colossae was on that route, right? And so most of their um, income, most of their significance came because they were along that route, which meant that it was a diverse area, right? Lots of travelers. Lots of um, thoughts and ideas and philosophies and, and religious influence would have come along the road. Um, some couple hundred years prior to this letter being written, one of the Roman uh, governors moved some 2,000 Jewish families to the, to the valley, to that area. And so it's become a, a cosmopolitan place where it's made a mix of both Gentiles who are non-Jews and Jews. Um, but it had, at this point in history, it has been surpassed, and it is really not much of a town. Um, Laodicea, which you would maybe recognize from Revelation, is one of the churches that John um, reads a letter off to, is in the same area. It's only 10 miles away, and it has surpassed um, Colossae, of a city of significance um, or of import. Um, so the significance is waning significantly. Several commentators, including a gentleman named Lightfoot, says this is the least important city that Paul ever writes a letter to, um, which is, seems kind of mean, right? That, that, he, that they would um, say it like that, but just not a not a big place, not a significant city at all. Um, we when we read in Revelation the seven churches, the seven letters. Um, most of them are in this area. And so it's it's very likely um, that in the early 60s, there's a historical, um, that there was an earthquake that destroyed a lot of the valley. And where Laodicea and other cities were rebuilt, Colossae wasn't. And it's probably why there wasn't a letter to them during John's um, vision and revelation. So if you turn to chapter 4 for just a moment, you'll see a little bit of what. Um, it's taking place and how the letters would have been handled. In, in chapter 4, verse 7, um, it says, Tiochus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. So Tiochus has, has brought this letter back, and so he's the one in charge of reading it and giving the news and the report and answering questions to the church from Paul. And if you go down to verse 15 in chapter 4, it says this, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, right? To Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter, meaning the one we have, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And so you get a, a quick kind of insight into how the letters would have worked, that they would have been sent to specific Um, churches, specific people, specific individuals, meeting specific needs and answering questions, but then would be read and ministering to other churches in the area. So the letter to the Laodiceans, we don't have. It's been lost to history. right? But we see a a glimpse into how this would have happened, that they each got a letter, once they've handled it, read it, dealt with it, like swap and, and see what else that we're dealing with, what other Christians in our area are dealing with. Um, What we can kind of glean about the church in Colossae is this. It was probably mostly made up of former Gentiles or pagans. Um, There's very little Old Testament reference or allusion. There's a little bit. Um, There were were likely some Jews, but there's not a significant amount of Old Testament in this letter. And so most likely it's folks who would have had very little interest because it would not have been their historical um, background themselves. It's also important to note that Paul didn't plant this church. Um, he has actually never been to this church. You see in verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay on sea. Remember, it's just 10 miles down the road. And for all who have not seen me face to face. We can see in verses uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 1 that, that a, a man named Epaphras, Planted this church. Just as you learned it, the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And so basically, what we're going to see is happen is Paul's in prison. Epaphras has gone to visit Paul, is telling him about the church, what's going on, and now Paul is writing a letter back like to a like a a grandchild church, right? So Epaphras was most likely a convert of his during his time in, in Ephesus, about eight or nine years earlier. This is a young church, less than a decade old. Epaphras is telling him what it's like in Colossae, what's happening in the church. And so Paul writes a letter back to them to minister to them. Um, Epaphras has actually ended up in prison as well, and so Tychicus has the letter and is reading it and ministering to the people um, on their behalf. All right. Some why. Why would, why would we interact with, with this book? Why are we going to look at this letter? I'm, listen, one that maybe wouldn't matter to a lot of places, but I think it does when, as we live in a smaller, more rural area, is it's a good reminder there are no unimportant places. right? Like the, the Paul isn't only writing letters to major metropolitan areas. He's also writing it to small places that have a waning or never had significance. And and it's a reminder to us that there are no unimportant churches, no unimportant places. Um, One of the the themes that we're going to see throughout this letter are the implications of the resurrection, right? Like he's going to say, listen, because Jesus has come, because he's won, because he's conquered, and because he's alive, there are going to be implications for how we live. And he's going to work those out in in really every sphere of life, um, from how we handle being under Rome to how we handle our household and everything in between. Um, that it, and he's going to argue that listen, the the resurrection isn't just for our future that you someday get to go to heaven, right? It matters today for how we live in this life. There was a false teaching that was going throughout the church um, and throughout the community, and so he's going to combat that as well. He'll actually never name it specifically what it is. Um, what we can kind of surmise is because the city has a lot of travelers and a lot of influence um, is being put on them from people traveling through, that most likely kind of a, a, a mishmash of philosophical ideas and religion and, and, and Judaism have emerged and come together that are arguing, hey, that there's spiritual experience you can have aside from Jesus and you need that. And so what Paul's going to argue is, is, hey, quit listening to these false teachings. Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. And whatever someone's throwing at you, whatever idea or philosophy is is coming at you, Jesus is sufficient. You don't need experience beyond Him. He is enough. And then ultimately, and maybe most importantly, while we want to look at this letter, is Paul is just going to elevate Jesus. Like in this huge cosmic way right like this reminder that he's not just the one who rescued and saved you he is like lord of creation he holds all things together he is king and all of life is touched by him and so not rome and not your circumstances and not the government and not anything right is really ruling your life jesus is and so then he has a, an impact, and something that he would say about how we handle any of our circumstances, whether they're good or they're bad, because King Jesus is in control. This week, as I was kind of thinking through that idea, I think right we we can tend to lean one of two ways as we think about Jesus. We can lean towards a very a very close, very personal, like he's he's a lot like me, and 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 they're, Listen. He is brother. Like he brings us into the family. Or we can lean to a very high and exalted view, and he's, he's other than. And we can't even imagine him being close or caring for us or knowing our name. And yet both of these things, right, both his bigness and his nearness are true. They're both true. And so um, this week, uh, Janner, uh, most of y'all know, is Tiny. And he's two, and he is tries to be fierce, but it's kind of like a funny fierceness, because he's not fierce, right? Like, he's a, he's just little. And But what he'll come up to me now on a daily basis, multiple times a day, and he goes, you want to rah And what it means is, you want to wrestle, right? And then he just kind of, in all of his little fury, um, will attack me, right? And he's throwing his fist, and he's grabbing me, and we wrestle, and, and I fall to the ground, and, you know, he's... He goes, You're dead, right? Like he's he's conquering me. And and in that moment, right, there's there's this this closeness, there's this intimacy, and he's winning. But make no mind. In any other sort of situation, right, if any other person is around, if anything scares him in the least, hey dad, hold me. And he immediately wants off the ground, he wants in my arms, and he wants the security of me. So in the same day. He can both think he's winning and defeating me, right? Like that I'm I'm small and he's big, and he's also reminded that where he needs security is in my arm, right? Like and, in, and there's a sweetness to both of them, right? That, that we can interact, and he can think more highly of himself in a moment than is true, and yet that's it's okay, right? Because we're relating. But when it really comes, push comes to shove. He knows where he needs to be. And what Paul is trying to tell the church is this, is listen, you, you, you can think of Jesus sometimes maybe too smallly, Like, smally is not a word. Too too small, right? You can think of him as too... Carmen's going to lose it up here. Um, you, you can think of him as being too minute, too similar to you. And there's an intimacy that is right and good, but do not forget that he has caused things. Do not forget that He holds all things together, that He is weighty and He is significant, right? And we bow a knee to Him. And we need not one of those ideas, we need both of those ideas. And so Paul's going to help us see how both of those things can be right and true in our lives. And so listen, we're going to read just the first few verses as we begin this morning. Beginning in verse 1. Listen, we have a really typical greeting from Paul. You know, we're reminded that he's not met them, and yet there's just this like warmth and kindness that Epaphras has obviously spoken very highly of the church, that they're doing well, um, and and so he's he's heard, and now he is writing to encourage them. And if we're not careful, listen, when when you start reading through a new book, it's really easy to kind of blitz the intro. They can feel a little bit formulaic. Like all of Paul's letters seem to start similarly, and so we just kind of move through to what what is the heart of the letter, what's the meat, and yet there is a significance to to the words and the and the usage that Paul brings. We don't want to presume, right? We don't want to assume that we we have a, everything under um, control. Like church, we we live in an area where the gospel has been assumed a lot, and there is a saturation. Of churches, but it doesn't mean that there's been a saturation of gospel. And as soon as we begin to think, okay, I'm good with this, I've got it, right, we begin to assume some things that we, we shouldn't, right? Like we want to know and to have our hearts rekindled because he's writing to a church who's been faithful, and yet he is still reminding them of the heart and the need of the gospel, right, for themselves as well as for those that they're pointing to Jesus in the community and in their families. And so he immediately just kind of rests in and, and settles on what's their standing. Like, what's their standing before God? And so in verse 2, he says, I'm writing to the saints, right? The faithful brothers and sisters. That's an all-inclusive idea there. I'm writing to the saints. Maybe your, your translation might say to the holy ones. And, and it's important for us to know that that idea of saints are holy is not as much about like their moral Like what they've been able to garner, right? Like what they've been able to do, how obedient they are. It is—it is their position, right? God has said, "You are a saint. You are holy." He has put them in that place. It is their position. It's not perfection. In Exodus 19, verse six, God tells the people of Israel, "Listen, I've, I've called you out. I've made you a kingdom of priests, right?" This is at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are being delivered. And he says, I've made you a kingdom of priests. I've I've said that about you. You haven't earned the title of priest. You haven't earned moral um, perfection or holiness. I'm saying that's who you are. And so he's reminding the church at Colossae, you haven't accomplished something. You haven't earned something. It's who God has said you are. You are holy and you are forgiven because of Jesus. Right? Why? Like they're recipients. What are they recipients of? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Church, this morning, we are recipients of grace. Unmerited intervention. That Jesus stepped in to human history on our behalf for the glory of God to make us right with the Father, to put us back where we belong with him. And it was unmerited. He wasn't going, I I have no choice but to go rescue them. Look at how good they are. Scripture says we are the enemies of God. That he demonstrated his love for us at our worst, not at our best. That he comes to make us his. It is unmerited grace. And the longer that we sit in church, the more we've read Scripture, the more we've been around Christians, there can be a sense where we begin to think it's a little merited. As we forget who we were prior to Christ. That we are a kingdom of priests, that we are saints, that we are a holy nation because of Jesus, not because of us. Not because of our faithfulness, not because of our obedience, not because we've earned something, but because God has said, that is who you are. And so he says, grace to you, a reminder, you have unmerited grace, unmerited kindness and intervention and mercy and peace from God the Father. This idea of peace is peace in all circumstances, despite our circumstances, right? It's not saying that everything around you is peaceful, but that you are at peace in your circumstances, despite what's happening because of Jesus, because first and foremost, he has made us at peace. He has put us at peace with God. We no longer are warring against him for those who are in Christ. We're at peace with him. And so then He begins to root and anchor us in peace despite our circumstances. Listen, living under Rome wasn't where everyone wanted to be. Right? And yet He says, despite your leadership, despite your circumstances, you can be at peace. Listen to how this is described as Jesus is talking in John chapter 14, verse 27. He's talking to His disciples and He says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. So let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? He's saying, listen, you're, there's going to be difficulty in this world, but I don't give you peace like the world does. We're, in the world we say we're at peace when everything around us is right. right. When we have enough money, we're not afraid of anything, when our health is good. And Jesus says, I don't give you peace like that. I give you peace. Despite your circumstances, you can be rooted in me. Your circumstances will not dictate your peace. I give you peace. Peace from God to us, the saints. That we are in Christ. Why can Paul write this to a people that he doesn't know? Right, Because it's his story. If we go to Acts chapter 9, right... In that story, Paul is on the way to to arrest, to physically harm, to pursue, to persecute Christians. When Jesus meets him on the way and says, no more, you're mine. I'm giving you mercy, unmerited. I'm giving you grace, unmerited. I'm giving you peace, unmerited. You're mine. And I've done these things. And so now Paul can write to a church that he's never been to, that he's never met, and says, Listen, brothers and sisters, we we agree on something that God has made us right with Him. He has given us things that we do not deserve. And so we are saints based on our position because God has said so, has said so. It's his story as well. Go on to verse four. So in verse three it says we give thanks so like when you pray. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, right? This idea of belief, like you've had faith, you have belief that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection are sufficient to put you at peace with God. That belief is important, and of the love that you have for all the saints. And it's important for us to note because we live in a culture where people believe belief is sufficient, right? Belief isn't sufficient, right? Because it says in James, that even the demons believe in Jesus, right? They believe, they know He's real, they just don't submit and they don't follow. And so where salvation is, is, is knowing the right thing, and then it's submitting our hearts, right? It's submitting to Him and obeying and following Him. And so he says, listen, you have had your faith in Christ, and then we know that you have then shown love to other believers. He's like, your, your faith has led to obedience, your faith has led to action, And you're loving other people because of Jesus. He continues in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So he basically says, listen, we believe the same thing, that God has rescued us, that's the gospel, that's the good news. And so you believe it, you have faith in it, so now you're acting on it, you're giving love to, to others. Because why? Because you have hope in heaven. Like you have this, this security, this deposit in heaven. What is that? It's Jesus. Right? Who's ascended to the right hand of the Father, but alive. Hearing our prayers, interceding on our behalf, never leaving us, never forsaking us, still moving through His Spirit in the world that He is ministering and moving. That we have received something, we have believed it, we are now act, in a way that reflects that we know Jesus, that looks like Him, because we are anchored and secure in our hope in heaven. The question that Paul is going to ask them is, hey, are you being tossed a little bit? Are you being tossed to and fro? This is what he, the language he uses in, in Ephesians. Church, sometimes we can be tossed to and fro by the circumstances of the world. By politics, by our health, our lack of health by fear of what's happening internationally, by relational um, difficulty or strife, by the loss of loved ones or friends. like right, We can feel tossed to and fro of, like, I don't know where to stand. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you are rooted because you have hope in heaven. And in that rooting, you can be anchored to now, despite your circumstances, you can continue to love and to follow and to point people to Jesus you imagine a scene where someone, um, well, I'll I'll have to imagine, I'll tell you a scene. I'm not a great swimmer, okay? Don't count on me saving your life. I'm trying to not die when I swim. Like, that is basically my ability, is I can keep my head above water. And so we were um, in a pool a couple weeks ago. I'm swimming. Jude jumps off the diving board, lands on my shoulders. And as he's there, he's like, Dad, I swallowed some water. And he's, like, pushing on my shoulders. And I'm going, son... (laughs) This, you got to get off me. Like, I, I can, I can get to the side. I might kind of be able to get. Like, this is not good. Like, I, don't count on me to rescue you, right? Like, and there's just this sputtering, flailing. That's a little embarrassing, right? Um, Harmon tries not to look at me with too much shame, um, as I don't drown. So that, like, that's the scene. Like, you don't go, hey, that man, that man is anchored, and he is moving Jude with like confidence and boldness to that side. Man, you put me in the shallow end, and I'll throw some people, right? I can can rescue them. But you put me where I can't touch, and I just don't want to die. This idea here is that we have a hope that is secured and anchored in heaven, right? And so despite our circumstances, we are rooted in something. And so, church, if we can grasp this idea, then we become rooted in this life, and where others are being tossed to and fro... People are going, wait, you're not, you're not flailing. You're not drowning. You're not moving. Why? Because I have this security that Jesus has given me mercy, that He has given me peace, and that He is rooted in heaven. Like He has rooted me in that hope that I know where, who I belong to and where I'm going. That I'm anchored in it. And it's why there are people, right, who are living in Afghanistan telling people about Jesus. They're anchored in something. And it's not in the hope of this world. It's in a hope of heaven and Jesus. It's why even now when others are running from trouble, there are those who will run to trouble. Right? It's why the, there are those who will still go across international borders to tell people about Jesus in the midst of all the chaos and uncertainty of all that's going on. They're saying, I want people to know and I'm rooted. So what the circumstances of this life don't matter as much because I'm rooted in heaven. And they're they not looking to make trouble, they're just secure. And so, so church, we can, we can take this as big as Afghanistan, or we can make this as small as a gospel community. right? When we're needing to start new ones, and you're going, ah, but I'm secure where I'm at. Can I, can I go out somewhere else so that other people can have a place of belonging and of community and of knowledge and of love and of grace and of peace and meet King Jesus, who will then secure them? so that they can reach out into the places of influence that they have, so those folks can be secured, so that they can know. And we're not flailing, but we are secured and anchored in Jesus. So Paul's going to have some correction and some warning that we will get into in the weeks to come in Colossians. Right now, he's reminding them what you need is to be anchored right, in the gospel, which has come to you as indeed to the whole world. It is bearing fruit. And it's increasing you don't just like it's continuing to do a work in you, as it has done among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And so where we're going to end this morning is this: is he's laying the foundation to say, "Hey, if you're flailing, you need to ask the question: Is it, is it a matter of not trusting Jesus in this moment?" So, like, we can be reminded and encouraged. That's okay. Like, let's be anchored. Or is it, I don't know Jesus? Like, I've never understood the gospel of grace. I've never understood the truth that's been laid out before me. I feel like I've got to earn it or secure it myself. Like, so are you secure in Him? Are you anchored? Are you connected to the anchor but flailing? Or have you never been connected to the anchor? He says, like, you've got to be in Christ, submissive, understanding that his rule touches all of life. And he's writing this to a people who are under Rome saying, "No, no, no, I'm king, not Rome. We're going to teach you how to walk in this, even when the rulers over you don't honor me. Jesus is sufficient for every spiritual need we have. And Paul is going to lay out in Colossians that Jesus is central, he is sufficient, and he is supreme. And so let's let's join in and listen as, as Tychus reads to the church, as we receive this, that we would hear what the Lord would have for us in this letter moving forward in the weeks to come. I'm going to pray for us. The band is going to come back up. Um, even this morning, if Jesus is saying, Hey, you're, you're mine. Trust me. Would, would you share that? Right? If, you, if you feel like you're flailing, would you say, Jesus... You anchor me in the hope of heaven once again. You need someone to talk to, to pray with, there'll be some folks in the back that would be glad to do that with you. You can sit if you need to sit. You can stand if you want to stand. But let's let the Spirit minister and move to us this morning. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that, that we can look um, at a letter written to a specific time, to a specific people almost 2,000 years ago, God, and find hope, find encouragement, can be encouraged and reminded that You are more than sufficient. You are more than enough. that You are huge and big and worthy. So, Father, for those of us who have forgotten that, would You stir in our hearts? Would You lift our chins? Would You take the scales from our eyes to see King Jesus, the One who holds all things together? God, for those this morning who maybe know about you but don't know you, have not submitted to you, God, once again, would you just call their name? God, that they would find themselves a recipient of unmerited grace and mercy and peace who would then walk in their submission and obedience to you. Father, we know there's brokenness all around us. There's hardship all around us. Father, we need you. We want to be an anchored people for our own sake, for your glory, but also for those around us who desperately need rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.